Leadership is more disposition than position. Influence others from wherever you are in the organization. That's John Maxwell in The 360 Degree Leader. Welcome to season two of the Leading Second Podcast. So excited you're here today. Here we go. This is the Leading Second Podcast, where we're on a mission to raise up uncommon church builders and be the kind of leaders our pastors would kill to have on the team. Welcome to season two of the Leading Second Podcast. My name is Brandon Stewart, and we are so honored today that you would jump on and join us for a new season of the Leading Second podcast. You know, Leading Second exists to raise up uncommon church builders. And if you lead and you're not the one in charge in your church, on your team, at work, in your organization, then Leading Second is for you. So welcome. So glad you found this space and so glad you're joining us for season two. We couldn't be more excited to bring to you this season some vital and necessary conversations that will impact your life and your leadership as an uncommon leader and an uncommon church builder. So for this season of the podcast, we have some exciting segments that we want to bring to you directly from the Leading Second Tribe. In other words, uh, we want this podcast to be crowdsourced. We want to hear from you. We want to hear your stories your questions, and your testimonials of what God is doing in your life through Leading Second. So we're just excited to bring to you a variety of sessions here before our interviews every single week. And today, we want to share with you a new segment we're calling an I Am Leading Second segment. Why don't we check out this story? My name is Hayden Boyd, and I get the honor of serving as the worship director at Fresh Church in Nashville, Tennessee. I absolutely love what I get to do. Leading from the second chair has been one of the most amazing things that I've ever done. I have an incredible pastor, Pastor Josh Hawk, who not only challenges me to be a better leader, but also empowers me to take ownership in all that God is doing in our church. I've grown so much since being in this role. It's truly an honor to serve and give my best to bring Pastor Josh's vision for the church which ultimately comes from God to life. I believe in leading from the second chair because Jesus promises that the harvest is plentiful, but he also says that the workers are few. If we want to see people awaken to fresh life in Jesus, then workers are needed to come alongside the vision and to serve with excellence and humility. It's my joy and privilege to serve in that capacity and to know that I have a pastor who not only leads well, but loves well. I can't wait to see where God takes our church because of the obedience of all those leaning in and leading from the second chair. I'm Hayden Boyd, and I am leading second. And I love it. If you'd like to share your I am leading second story, or if you'd like to ask a question to be featured on the podcast, I want to encourage you to join the Leading Second Forum on Facebook and meet our tribe. We'd love to get to know you there. We'd love to hear from you and feature your story or question or your testimony on an upcoming episode. All right, here we go. So for our first episode of season two, I am thrilled to bring to you a conversation I recently had with author and pastor 
Clay Scroggins. Clay is the lead pastor at North Point Community Church in Atlanta, Georgia, actually Alpharetta, Georgia, under the leadership of Andy Stanley. Uh, Clay is the author of an incredible book. You may have read it, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge. He's married and is the father of five kids, and today he joins the Leading Second podcast for a much-needed conversation. So here it is, without further ado, my conversation with Clay Scroggins. Hey, thanks for joining us today on uh, the podcast. Uh, Why don't you say hello to everyone? Yeah. Hey, Brandon, thank you, man. Thanks for doing this. And um, it's just, uh, I think it's such a great thing that you take your time, resources, energy to try to help um, leaders who are uh, not the, maybe not the point leader. It's a really awesome thing. So thanks, man. Absolutely. And it's the honor of a lifetime for my wife and I, you know, to get to do it and be part of our church, uh, like we are, uh, I was really thankful. Um, you know, what people may not know is when we were in kind of the pre-launch stage of launching leading second, a year, year and a half ago, we were in kind of the throes of ministry launching and fundraising, the stress of it and the strain of it. And then we actually came across your book during that time, and I just have to let you know this morning, it was a breath of fresh air to my wife and I in a really faith-stretching season. It just showed us, it, it validated, I guess, that other people thought how we thought and that maybe we weren't crazy in doing all this. So I just want yeah. to say a huge thank you uh, to you for writing your book and of course, uh, Clay's book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge, is is available everywhere. Books are sold, and, and we're going to talk about that today. Uh, but thank you so much, and thank you for all you do uh, for your church, for your city, and I'm sure for leaders everywhere. So tell sure. us a little bit about you and your family and how you got started at North Point. Sure. I grew up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Uh, my family rolls with the tide hard. <laughs> okay. Um, so... Uh, on the day that we're recording this, the national championship game is actually today. So big, big deal, big deal. Uh, I'll be with you tonight. I'll be with you. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Um, I moved to Atlanta in 1998 to, uh, attend Georgia tech. Uh, my parents always told me when I was a kid that I was good at math and science and I believed them until I got to Georgia tech and realized that I was not near as good as I thought I was. So I majored in engineering. Uh, I told them, hey, if you'll let me finish with this degree, I promise you I will never use it. And I have made good on my end of the bargain. Um, I got involved with North Point Community Church, which is uh, Georgia Tech's kind of right in the middle of downtown Atlanta. And North Point Community Church started just a couple of years before I moved to Atlanta. And so when I moved here, they had just moved into the building where I'm actually standing now. and I started attending as a college student. It's probably about 20 miles north of Atlanta. So we're kind of out in the suburbs and I was in school right in the middle of the city, but I just had such a great experience and God was using it in my life in such a profound way that I made the drive multiple times a week, uh, no problem. So I was a high school volunteer. I loved it. Uh, had a small group of high school guys that I walked from the time they were in ninth grade to the time they graduated. And then uh, I decided somewhere in the middle there that, man, I would love to, and I I probably didn't 
the calling, uh, ministry calling has always been a little peculiar for me because I, I didn't necessarily feel like I'm called to ministry. I wanted to work at North Point. Yeah, I understand that. Which, that was a, I don't know, that I never knew there, I never knew anything other than that until I got to seminary and realized that most people, that's not their experience. And so I graduated from college, moved to Dallas, Texas, went to Dallas Theological Seminary, met my wife there. She is, uh, she's a Texas A&M Aggie. Come on now. Um, she also, yeah, she wanted to do ministry as well. Um, and her family had kind of known about North Point. And so she was a little bit familiar with it, but not too familiar. And I started working here in 19, uh, no, 2004. Uh, and I still do. I've worked here now for I I love it. going on 15 years. And you probably don't even realize your story is very similar to my own. I've grown up in the same church my whole life, and so I felt called to ministry. But I think maybe more than that, I felt called to my pastor. I felt called to our church, and I just wow. kind of never left. And wow. so from one-year-old to 38 now, I guess, I'm just wow. kind of in the same place. So, and I'm also um, recording this today from College Station, Texas. So go Aggies. Ah. Uh, I'm actually looking at the university right now. Uh, They whoop there. That's right. A big high-pitched whoop. Okay, so before we talk anything serious, I do have a few rapid-fire questions for you today that I want to ask. Sure. I like to ask every person we interview on the podcast just to help people get to know you. So here we go. Are you a morning person or a night owl? What time is that alarm going off? Morning, by far. This morning it was 5 a.m. But most mornings I don't even need the alarm um, coming off of coming off of the break. I feel like I need it a little more, but usually I don't even need it. Yeah, I'm actually the same way. I'm a 6 a.m.er. <laughs> okay, so uh, what is your coffee order when you're going through well, Starbucks? I will take anything, but I'm pretty uh, content with it. Cafe Americano. Okay. okay. Are you Apple or PC? Definitely Apple. We don't, um, but that, that wasn't really my choice. I mean, I'm glad to be Apple, but our whole organization is pretty Apple. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. What is your favorite thing to do on your days off? I love golf. Got it. So I, I have, I have uh, five little kids and so I can't play a ton. <laughs> Um, so if, I mean, normally on a day off, I'm hanging with the family, but if my wife happened to be booked up doing something else with our kids, I'd play golf. Got it. I love it. And last question, what is something interesting about you that not very many people would maybe know about you? Um, I grew up at a high school that was pretty diverse and I was one of the only white kids on our basketball team. Oh, wow. Uh, Because of that, I am a pretty um, avid hip hop fan. Nice. That's probably, I don't know how interesting that is, but that's definitely me. No, I love it. I love it. Well, I have to say it again. Uh, I loved your book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge. It, it really impacted uh, myself. It really impacted our team at my home church. And uh, so thank you for writing it. Uh, tell me a bit this morning when you were sitting down to write this book, what problem did you see that you were trying to solve? Uh, there was a problem inside of me that I was really, uh, I had been addressing 
And so the more I talked about it, the more I realized it was not just common to me, that it was common to most people. And that is that um, I knew I wanted to be a leader, but I thought that being a leader meant being in charge. And Mm. I've just learned over and over again in multiple ways that uh, if leadership really is about influence way more than it's about authority, then uh, being in charge doesn't necessarily make you a great leader. Uh, it just makes you in charge. Right, totally. Leaders who are in charge who aren't leading well, and there's plenty of leaders who are not in charge that are doing really amazing things. And so I was really trying to solve that for myself. So if if leadership really is influence and not just authority, then what does that mean for me? What what am I doing to cultivate influence, and what am I doing that's costing me influence? Very, very well said. And I feel like one of the problems that I saw was that too many leaders in the second chair didn't have enough dignity or identity in the second chair. You know, like I'm I'm proud to be in that place of leadership. What got you to the point where you were actually proud to say, I'm a leader. This is my role. This is my place in the church. This is my place in the body of Christ. What got you to that point? Yeah. And I don't, I mean, just talking to you briefly before we got started, Brandon, I don't know for me if being in the second chair is a lifelong calling. Uh, I think there might come a day where I'm not uh, in the seat that I'm in, but I think I just, uh, what, what allowed me to get comfortable with it um, was realizing how much can be done through the, uh, the leader that's not necessarily in the senior leader seat. Uh, and I think the the lie that too many people believe is that you've got to be out on your own or you've got to be yes the, the key senior leader in order to get something done. And I just have become convinced that that's not true, that you can get a lot done th- for other people through your organization uh, in any seat that you're in. And so I, I just think believing that has really helped me. Um, find more comfort and probably feel more confident in the seat that I'm in and, and really trying to give up the striving that I felt in me to try to get into another seat. Yeah. And I think I've met many leaders in the second chair who did end up going out and doing something else. But I think what you just, um, you said it so well a second ago, uh, you said it's a lie. It, It truly is a lie to think my ministry ambitions are on hold until I have my name on, you know, the sign out front or something like that. That's exactly right. And, and that's probably one of the more common, I mean, the more, the more that I've preached over the last five years, the more that people have seen me in a more visible leadership position, the more common the question is that I get, uh, Hey, when are you going to go out and start your own thing? And I think at first I was, you know, maybe flattered by that question or maybe even like a little bit, uh, insecure by the question going, you know, what, uh, am I doing something wrong right now? Uh, but th- I think that's right. what I determined is that inside of what they're asking is, is the same lie that they're basically saying the same thing that, Hey, until you get out on your own. And I don't think they're saying this intentionally, but maybe unintentionally, it can be inferred that, Hey, until you get out on your own and go lead your own thing, you're not really leading. And I just think yep. that's not, um, that's just not true. Yes, absolutely. You know, there's no doubt that leading in the second chair comes with a lot of pressure from all sides. You know, we're responsible for leading up, leading down, leading laterally. I loved 
your part of the book where you were talking about identity. You know, you have that quote about, um, you called it the swirling emotions uh, that, you know, in your ability to process things accurately, process things securely, and it came by finding your identity. And I guess I would just love to ask you this morning, what led you to a place where you found that kind of security where you could therefore then process the pressures that came with the second chair, came from the second chair? Yeah, I I would say it was definitely not anything that was overnight and it's not, there's definitely not a silver bullet to, um, or a magic bullet to um, identity. I mean, identity is a, it is a lifelong work. Um, I think I would have thought probably until six months ago, I would have thought, yeah, I've done most of what I need to do to root myself securely in what God says about me. But um, even the last six months have been real challenging and trying and some things that have happened in my own uh, work world that have challenged my identity yet again. And it just Mm. over and over again, over and over again, I've come back to the conclusion that identity is something that's really formed and it's tested over a lifetime. But I just think the more I started writing about, okay, well, here are the things that I'm trying to do to cultivate more influence, the more I started realizing that there's just something deeper at play, that you can't just apply a bunch of leadership axioms or behaviors and think that that's going to gain you influence, that ultimately uh, every one of us is, um, we're really just an amalgamation of uh, our childhood and our father wounds and our, you know, the way we see ourselves and the way we think other people see us. And that sense of identity is what's uh, most important to our ability to lead others. Because, uh, you know, we all know people that have just read a bunch of leadership books and tried to apply it. And that does not, that just doesn't work. You know, clearly, there's help, and there's benefit from advice. But the most important thing any one of us can do is to figure out, how do I see myself and how do I think other people see me and then choose to elevate what God says about me above all of that. And that's not, uh, that's never easy to do and failure challenges it and success challenges it. And it's just real easy to be in the, uh, in any other seat beside the senior leader seat and to think, Oh, I'm either less than because I'm not the senior leader or I'm, I think too highly of myself and that's equally as dangerous. Um, and I know this is a challenge I'm sure for people that are, that are in the senior leader seat. I just, I don't know that near as well as I know the seat that I'm in right now. So I just have determined it's just, it's the, the most important thing for every single one of us and our ability to lead is how we see ourselves. Yeah. I just thought it was really a significant part of what you wrote. And I think even a significant part of my own journey over the years You know, the Bible talks a lot about the idea that so much of our life and so much of our leadership comes out of our hearts. I I think that half of what we talk about in Leading Second or more than half of what we talk about are heart issues because that and identity issues are really what's shaping our responses in all of those moments. Also, I loved when you talked about darkroom 
development. You hit on one of my favorite subjects when you talked about that, the unseen moments, you know, that shape our lives, shape our futures as leaders. If you were to look back for a minute, um, was there a dark room moment or a season in your life that particularly shaped you for what you're doing now? Yeah, for me, it was probably every moment in my past or career where I felt passed over. Um, and there have been multiple times like that. I mean, I, I do a lot of stage leadership. And so when, you know, when you're in that world, there's so much, uh, or I guess there's just such a strong temptation to evaluate your success based on your invitations. What am I being asked to speak at? What am I not being asked to speak at? And ever since I was, I started speaking in front of people probably when I was 21, 22 doing student ministry stuff. Mm. And there have always been people in my life that God has used to uh, help me learn how to celebrate and help me to really fight jealousy and fight, you know, the feeling of they're passing me or they're getting ahead of me or I'm not getting enough. And what it always forces me to come back to, or I guess when I'm healthiest, what it always forces me to come back to is being really content with where God has me. And yet still being um, appropriately ambitious for more opportunity. And I think that's a really difficult balance for anybody. Uh, But those are the, to me, those have been the darkest. I mean, those are the ones that embarrass me most, quite honestly. I don't like talking about (laughs) about myself, but um, I just know how true it is that those are the times and they they never go away. Um, But those are the times I feel like that God has used, the, the dark room the most and helping me uh, or really forcing me to develop. It's really well said, especially when you talk about people outpacing you or, you know, running, uh, running fast or getting more opportunity, you know, as second chair leaders, it's not as if we check our ambition at the door, you know, it's, it's not like, I actually think it can serve us well if we learn how to harness it, learn how to master it, how would you say a young leader can navigate their own ambition and steward their own ambition, especially if they're feeling like it's not my turn yet, or they're feeling like someone else is passing them, or they feel like my leader won't give me a shot, or you know, however it comes. How can a leader navigate ambition well and harness it rather than kill it? That's a great question. That, well, first of all, I would just say don't um, don't kill it. I, I think taking it out back and shooting it is not <laughs> always the best thing. And I think sometimes that feels like the most Christian thing to do. Um, but it, that, that was always my challenge growing up is it felt like being a good Christian meant having no ambition. And I don't think that's true. So um, I think God put it in you. I would start there by saying God definitely put it in you to want to lead something. I think it's, it goes all the way back to the garden when God gave us the ultimatum to go be fruitful and multiply. And then secondly, to go, uh, uh, to go create dominion, to go create order in the world. And I think that's inside of us, this, uh, ambition to want to lead something, which lead basically just means to organize or to create something or to make something better. And so I think it's in you, but I think, the thing that has helped me more than anything is really learning to be content with where I am. I, I, I think what I realized was if I leave this job, because what's the alternative, you know, the alternative is people when I leave this job going, yeah, we kind of knew, we kind of knew he was never really in. 
And mm. so I just decided I want people to be totally surprised when I do decide to go do something different. Wow. It's a much better, that's a much better. Totally. Than, yeah, we kind of saw it coming. We kind of knew he wasn't really in. And so if I can be fully dedicated to the job that I'm in, which means believing or at least choosing to believe that if this were the last job I ever have, I'll be okay or I could do it, or it wouldn't, there's worse callings in the world, or there's worse jobs in the world. I think choosing to believe that only helps you because it allows you to commit fully to the job that you're in right now. And so I've decided that about the job I'm in right now. I don't think this job is going to be the last job I'm ever in. And that's probably 99% true of everybody listening. The job you're in right now is right. the last job you'll ever be in, but you may as well commit to it like it is. You may as well commit to it, go all in on it like it is the last job you'll ever have. And Choose to believe that God can uh, grant you that thing that he granted Paul where, you know, in Philippians, Paul said, I have learned the secret to contentment, whether in rich or poor or good health or not good health. I've learned to be content that I can do anything in Christ who strengthens me. That that's really the context for that verse, not the weight room necessarily. But the idea that you and I can find contentment, we can learn it. We can learn how to be content in any situation, including situations that are great and situations that are not so great. So I think for me, that's been the healthiest thing that I've been able to do is to not kill my ambition, but to at the same time find contentment in the role that I'm currently in. Man, so well said. I always knew they would leave. I've never heard it said like that. And that is so well said. Let me kind of land the plane here in just our last couple of minutes. And I'm going to be really unfair to you and ask you two of the biggest questions we get at leading second, and you're going to have a couple minutes to respond. Uh, but I love hearing people's healthy responses to these questions because we hear them all the time as we talk to young leaders. My first question along these lines would be this. How do you navigate moments with your leader when you disagree with them? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I've learned probably more from Brene Brown about this than anyone else, yes. but she writes so much about empathy. And I think learning to have empathy when you disagree is so helpful because a lot of times you know, disagreeing, especially, uh, you know, James talks about this in his letter that he wrote that disagreement usually is about me not getting my way. And if yeah. I can suspend my judgment and suspend my pride in thinking that the way I'm seeing it is the right way, it forces me to gain curiosity and to try to try to get on the other side of the problem, which is usually my boss's side of the problem. Um, and to try to ask more questions than I present or then I bring up problems. Um, that, that alone, you know, if I can convince myself that there is information that I do not have, that if I had, it would help me see the way my boss sees. If I can convince myself of that, it really forces me to be curious. And then, you know, what I try to do, and I even did this about uh, three weeks ago in a challenging conversation that I was having with one of my bosses is, you know, the, the marriage advice that we give couples where we say, hey, you know, whenever there's a problem that you feel like is in between the two of you, the best posture to take is to go, hey, let's think about us in a booth at, you know, Steak and Shake or whatever your favorite place to sit late at night is. And instead of being across the booth from each other with the problem sitting in between us, let's get on the same side of the booth and let's realize that we're both trying to attack this problem together and let's work on it together. And let's refuse to put it in between us. And so I think that's the other thing I've had to do to try to, re 
to try to reject the resentment that wants to find its way into the relationship when there is a problem, because there is going to be a problem. So I think yeah. learning to put the problem out in front of the two of us and get on the same side, I think that really helps me. Uh, it just helps me navigate it with humility, but also in a spirit of unity. I love it. I love it. And I love Brene Brown too. She changed my life uh, with her writing on empathy and shame and vulnerability and all of it. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Uh, final question for you. Again, a big question we get. What should our response look like when our leaders make a mistake? I mean, they're going to. Right. It happened in the Bible. It's happened to all of us. What should our responses look like? Yeah, well, I, I think embedded in your question, what you just said about how we see it throughout the history of the church, we see it throughout the history of Israel and Judah. There's, I think a lot of times we get we we sit in the posture that, oh, no, my leader is a bad leader because he or she made a mistake as if God can no longer accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And the truth is God has accomplished what he wants to do through bad leaders who make mistakes uh, way more than he has the other way around. So uh, God's certainly not surprised by it. Uh, But I, I would say, you know, obviously beginning with grace, showing a lot of grace, knowing that, Hey, um, Uh, there are people that look at me and are asking the same question. Clay's made a mistake. What do I do about that? And so knowing that I am just as capable of making mistakes as my boss is allows me to approach my boss with a sense of grace. Um, And then I think learning, you know, this is where being a student of your boss is so helpful because you have to learn how to challenge appropriately. Um, Change never happens without something being challenged. And so whether it's a mistake or not, you have to eventually learn how to challenge your boss in an appropriate way. And, you know, one of the ways, or probably the best way to do that is determined by your boss's wiring and your boss's makeup. And yeah. you got you to know that. And so you got to know how does he or she want to receive information. You can be really wrong in a conversation, even when you're right. And a lot of yeah. it is determined by your approach. And so, you know, approaching, I try to start by, declaring my intentions or affirming, you know, telling my boss everything that I know that can be true. Um, And then I try to ask as many questions as possible to be as curious as possible to, you know, maybe if I knew what he knew or if I knew what she knew, then I would understand what I call a mistake. And then I try to articulate it. I try to say, Hey, so just to be clear, here's what I've heard. Here's what I've understood about what you're saying. And then I try to confront or advise. And if you go, in that direction, it will work out way better. Um, Totally. If you don't, you'll end up having to go the reverse. You'll try to, you'll end up confronting and then you'll have to uh, admit that you were wrong and say, hey, I I missed some information. And then you'll end up having to ask some questions about what you didn't know. And then you'll end up having to affirm at the end. And so um, it's just better to approach it uh, with affirmation and then uh, asking questions and then acknowledging what you don't know and then advising. Totally. Well, so much wisdom there, and uh, we'll stop for today. But thank you so much uh, for your voice. Thank you so much for helping us today. I just want to give honor to you. I so appreciate all you've represented through this book and all you've represented at your church. So thanks so much, Clay. Glad to do it, Brandon. Thanks so much. 
If this podcast has resonated with you, we would love to hear from you. I want to encourage you to go to leadingsecond.com or to the Leading Second Forum on Facebook. Ask a question, submit your story, get to know our tribe. We would love to include you in what God is doing here at Leading Second. I also want to encourage you today to help us by becoming a podcast ambassador. I want to encourage you to leave a rating, a comment, even consider sharing this with someone who doesn't know about the Leading Second podcast. Even take your team through this. It would be our honor to bring you a weekly installment of leadership and perspective for uncommon church builders. So we love you, Leading Second. Here we go with season two. Let's run strong for the kingdom and lead in an uncommon way together. For more information, check out leadingsecond.com or join us on the Leading Second Forum on Facebook.